Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files Defectors, those intrepid souls who took off in a jet plane and flew to freedom. Well, that's only a tiny part of the story. And Andrew Morris, the man who literally wrote the book on PRC defectors to the ROC on Taiwan, notes that in the 1950s, more pilots actually defected the other way, flying from ROC territory back to their home in China. That's just one of the many fascinating details Morris had to offer in a 2022 interview with Li Ping Chen a postdoctoral scholar and teaching fellow at the East Asian Studies Center of the University of Southern California. Chen is a host on a podcast from New Books Network. I'll put up all the info on the NBN in the show notes. And she frequently interviews authors about their Asia-related books. So in 2022, she spoke with Andrew Morris. He's a professor of history at California Polytechnic State University. And Morris studies the modern histories of Taiwan and China. And most recently, he's the author of Defectors from the PRC to Taiwan, 1960 to 1989, The Anti-Communist Righteous Warriors, published by Routledge in 2022. Li Ping Chen graciously agreed to our request to use audio from that conversation, which I have heavily edited due to time issues. And again, I will add a link to the new books network. And please do go check it out as they have tons of great content. But now, sit back and enjoy a riveting discussion on defectors. And do bear in mind the subtitle of Andrew Morris's book, The Anti-Communist Righteous Warriors, as understanding the mentality of the time I think is useful and important. And thanks again, Li Ping. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about your research interest. Uh, introduce yourself. Sure, yes. My PhD is in modern Chinese history, so I'll go back a couple of decades here. And at some point, I became uh, involved in studying sport in modern Chinese culture. And so first writing a book about sport, physical culture in the early, in the late Qing, in the Republican period. And then from there, actually doing this, a similar th- project in Taiwan and studying the the history of Taiwanese baseball and looking at that from Japanese colonial period through the Republican period on Taiwan until pretty recent past. I've been working on Taiwan actually for most of uh, the last couple of decades. And I was starting to feel like I wanted to do something to bridge those those two areas again. Again, I'd started off studying modern China, gotten more involved studying Taiwanese history it felt like it was it was time to try to think about them both together in some way and that was the kind of early origin of of this study i think when you talk about the the connections i'm i'm very interested in where the connections are and obviously where they aren't and so taking any real time to study taiwanese history gives you a pretty clear sense of of that question that that there are these really deep connections in certain ways and then there are also these very obvious disconnects in the histories of the mainland and of Taiwan, or in the recent period, PRC and Taiwan. And there's also another real specific origin of this study, which is this event that takes place in 2001. And it, there's a, a couple criminals who are put to death for their part in a, in a kidnap and ransom and murder crime that took place in 1991. 
And so this ends up being, I, I suppose, the ultimate spoiler of, of this study. But I, I think I should mention it because it is the thing that really put this in my mind in terms of uh, making this an interesting topic. And that's because these two individuals that I mentioned who were put to death by the ROC government had been two of these very celebrated defectors in 1983 and 1984. And so when this happened in 2001 and these, these former heroes anti-communist righteous warriors are put to death for their part in this really gruesome murder. It really stood out to me as it made me realize that this topic probably had so much more than I had ever really thought about. And I'd, I'd been acquainted with the histories of these defectors, but only in a pretty superficial way. And my my sense in talking to people about them just very generally in the 90s was that this was already seen as this very antiquated, very strange part of, of Taiwan's history even though it went on through even to 1989. And so I had in my head that there was this history of these defectors who were celebrated and became these great stars in, in ROC culture, but I hadn't really taken it seriously. And so again, this, this event in 2001 made me think that there was probably way more to look into, and, and thankfully I was right about that. When the first of these defections took place that I cover in 1960, the ROC government of the Republic of China government had been in Taiwan for about 11 years. They had governed the mainland from 1912 through 1949 when they were expelled by the victorious communists. But since 1949, there had been this 11-year period where they had never stopped wanting to get back to China. And that was a very important thing for President Chiang Kai-shek to get back to the mainland that his party and his government had governed, and for the roughly million mainlanders who had accompanied his government to Taiwan. Most of them, when they went to Taiwan, thought it would be for a short time. But by 1960, there were a million of these people that we'll be referring to as mainlanders, or Weishengren, who had been there for 11 years, much longer than they'd ever counted on, and separated many, in most cases, from their families on the mainland. And so, but this moment where there were two competing Chinese regimes, the People's Republic of China, ruled by the communists, and the Republic of China, like I said, ruled by the, you know, the, the nationalist party. And so a lot of uh, what we'll be talking about of these defectors had to do with this competition and this attempt on the ROC side, on the Taiwan side, to prove that this was the superior Chinese government and that these defectors who were putting themselves at great danger and, in fact, putting their families in probably even more danger, the fact that they were taking the step to escape the mainland to get to Taiwan was meant to mean a lot about the superiority of a free China, as the ROC called itself. Can you tell us a little bit more about the People's Republic of China, especially in the 60s and 80s? You mentioned many of the defectors, they were escaping. Many of them, when they get to Taiwan, they are asked to weigh in on the conditions in China. And they, they end up serving as these very, very important witnesses to what's really happening in communist China. And so your question is actually getting to a really important part of, of who these defectors were meant to be in their, their significance once they got to Taiwan. So when the story starts again in 1960, we're still in the incredible famine that was part of the Great Leap Forward. And what's uh, incredibly to think about happening in the 20th century, but the worst famine in the history of, of humanity. And so with these, the, this first batch of, of defectors are, are leaving a China that's, that's in the, the midst of that you know, very much man-made Great Leap Forward famine. Most historians trace that through to 1961 or 62, but that's followed relatively quickly, relatively you know, soon after by the Cultural Revolution. And so there's another batch of defectors that will mainly be coming in the 70s and 80s, and they will all cite the Cultural Revolution as this really important moment where they lost their faith in the communist government. They'll cite very specific and very horrible examples of what happened to their parents, to their grandparents, 
And they'll be asked once they get to Taiwan to, again, to describe this in real close detail, mainly for the purposes of showing this essential difference between a Taiwan that is supposedly democratic, it's not, <laughs> in the 70s and 80s, by, by really any stretch of the imagination until we get into the mid to late 80s. But that is at least the language that's being used in Taiwan. And again, as I said, these defectors are being asked to share these very painful memories and experiences in order to show what's always been wrong with the communist government. Can you tell us a little bit about the defectors and then how do they defect to Taiwan? The group that I cover is mainly the group of military pilots that did that and one group of hijackers that were able to hijack a civil aircraft in 1983. There was a, a much larger group of these defectors who somehow or other made it from the PRC to Taiwan. But I ended up focusing on these pilots because their experiences are, are really the ones that are remembered the most, that were celebrated the most, that are the most dramatic, and that really seemed to excite the population of Taiwan and probably more specifically the mainlander population of Taiwan. There was something about being able to do this in such a flash, being able to get in your plane, make up your mind, I'm not going to serve the communist bandits, as again, the, the, the nationals always referred to the communist party. I'm not going to serve these puppets of the Soviets who are destroying Chinese culture, destroying traditional Chinese ideas, and so on and so on. Again, I'm, I'm quoting the real um, orthodox nationalist way of, of discussing who these pilots were. Like I said, there were many, many more people who made it from the PRC to Taiwan indirectly, usually through Hong Kong. That was usually just the many, many refugees who got to Hong Kong and were hoping to make it to nationals ruled Taiwan, often had to stay in, in Hong Kong for a long time while they were cleared. One really interesting thing about this question of welcoming defectors is the flip side, which is security. One very common problem, I guess, is, is simply that there are all these people who are flooding into Hong Kong trying to get out of China, hoping to make it to Taiwan. But the nationalist government in Taiwan can't trust that these aren't just a bunch of spies. So they're actually very careful and very slow in terms of letting those people from Hong Kong get to Taiwan, even though they talk a lot about welcoming these defectors and what it means for free China. There's also another group of people who would be like musicians or diplomats or authors who would be able to travel abroad and from some third country, they would try to make it to a, you know, ROC embassy or something like that. So the group of defectors that I cover are actually a very small number, but they're definitely the ones whose defections were the most visible, the most dramatic. And again, the idea that they could just make up their mind that morning, get in their plane, veer away from their flight path and fly towards Taiwan was a very romantic idea then and seemed to really appeal to, again, mainly to that mainlander population. And it seemed to augur something about how easy it could someday be for them to get back to China if they've been waiting for 10 years, 20 years, you know, by the end of this period, almost 40 years, by the end of the period I study, to see their family. The idea that you could just do so in a snap seemed to deeply move people. And the government made a lot of use, again, out of these pilots and it, it's simply just exciting that they would fly over in these jet fighters and land and they would be welcomed by ROC Air Force personnel and carried on their shoulders and things like that. So it definitely made for a very exciting kind of political theater as well. In your book, you mentioned there's one defector that's actually reluctant. There are actually three people like this who are in a plane. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
when the pilot decides to make this this defection. And so there are three cases, uh, sorry, two cases of military pilots and one case um, of a actually just a kind of government pilot who make this choice when there's someone else in the plane. In each of those three cases, the other person didn't want to, or at least one of the other people didn't want to make this defection. The first one, uh, 1961, when there's actually a flight from northern China into South Korea. And so that's also a common part of these stories. Flying to Taiwan was an option for some pilots who were in southern China. But if you're in northern China, that's a very long way to go, especially when the Air Force starts limiting fuel, when they start worrying about defections and they start limiting the amount of fuel that's ever put into a single plane. So there are several of these that that occur where pilots defect leaving North China and they fly to South Korea and then have to request asylum to Taiwan. But the first one happens in 1961, where this is a plane that's actually being used for agricultural purposes, and the pilot just decides to go for it and fly to South Korea without consulting his his crewmate. And this is a really fascinating case. Uh, it's it's the first of these defections where the people make it to Taiwan alive. The reason I put it that way is that the first defection that I cover happens in 1960, where the pilot does fly to Taiwan, but he crashes on the the beaches of of northeast Taiwan and doesn't make it. So the first successful example is actually a flight to Korea. And the unwilling defector was named Gao Yozong. There's records that show up in the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs archives, where he's being held by the Korean government. And he is, he's beside himself, he's furious, he's, he's saying, I don't want to do this, I never wanted to defect, just let me get back to China, just put me in North Korea, and from there I'll just make it back to China myself. But obviously that can't happen. These, these defectors are much too valuable in terms of the publicity that they're going to give. And so he's sent on to Taiwan, and for 40 years, you know, in public, he's one of these celebrated defectors, but obviously he and this, you know, probably pretty small group of people do understand that he never wanted to do this. And I've always been interested in looking at the pictures. There's one of them who was always so happy to have made this, and it's always so easy (laughs) to tell, maybe just because I know the story, but it's just so always so very easy to tell that one of these defectors just was not interested in doing this and really resented being put in this position. They were taken to meet with Chiang Kai-shek when they got to Taiwan, this one, Gao was searched, physically searched, to make sure he wasn't going to try to hurt Chang. That's how little trust they had in him. Uh, they told him to not talk, lest he say something to offend President Chang. He still did talk. <laughs> and he told him, I don't want to be in the Air Force, in the ROC. And so he ended up being put to use in what was called uh, you know, psychological warfare. And he ended up winning awards by the early 80s for his many writings on how to reach the people of the mainland with ROC propaganda. So he eventually did settle into a career and was in fact celebrated for his contributions to the military. And I even make a case at the end of the book that he might be the one of these defectors that actually had the most military contribution. I hope this isn't jumping too far ahead, but one of the things that you see about these pilots is that they're never allowed to fly again. And the fact is very simple that they've already defected once. They've already shown their disloyalty once to the communist regime. And so once these people are in Taiwan for a while and perhaps start to miss their families and so on, the ROC Air Force also has no interest in letting them get back into a plane and have them perhaps uh, do the same thing back the other way. And so most of the pilots who defect end up only in these kind of ceremonial roles and I, I think have very little they're ever able to contribute, and it does seem that they're pretty frustrated by that. 
Uh, so ironically, the first of these unwilling defectors, I think, probably makes the most contribution to the military in terms of bringing his knowledge of agriculture in northern China and people's experiences during the famine and so on. We're talking about this unwilling defectors, and were there、uh, female defectors as well? In the group that I study, there was only one woman who's involved, and so part of this is determined by the fact of studying mainly these military pilots. And so I think I think we just have to say that that determines most of these to have been male defectors. But in the group of hijackers that came in 1983 that I actually referenced earlier, one of them was a woman. So her role in this history is pretty interesting. Gao Dongping.、And、so she's part of this 1983 hijacking in Shenyang in northern China. It's led by Zhuo Changyuan, who's this very intelligent, very skilled, very charismatic troublemaker. Is probably the best way to put it.、Um, he had graduated from the Liaoning Province、uh, Aeronautical School. But at some point, I think probably pretty soon after graduating, that, that's right. He'd gone to work for an electroplating company, I think, for the province, and from there had been involved in an automotive company that was run by the province. And from there, he became known as the Car King for his ability and habit and hobby, I suppose, of stealing cars from the unit, taking them to southern China, and selling them. And so he actually seems to have become this kind of well-known figure in the underworld, but also who had friends in the police department. He liked to go out and shoot target practice with with police officers, and they welcomed him because I guess because of his access to these cars and stuff. He was this really charismatic person who had put together this group of six that planned this hijacking. And some of them he found because they had there were two of them in particular who were security guards at the local PE college, the physical education college. And they had access to pistols, and so he befriended them. And Gao Dongping was、um, again the only woman in this group. Was also really fiery, had very very clear ideas about what was wrong with China in 1983 and the way that it, it restricted the way that the government restricted people's freedoms. She's actually the one who smuggles the guns onto the plane for the hijacking. When they do make it to Taiwan, I think her position is also interesting in the way that she's represented, usually in this really unflattering way to kind of represent what women from the PRC look like and dress like. I mean, it just seems it seems strange to, to talk about it in this way, but it is important to say that this was a way that Taiwan was in the culture and in the politics. It does seem to be the way that the, the media was making distinctions between free China, this developed China, and Taiwan. I mean, that had this economic boom. And mainland China. So one of the the easy ways I, I think that they saw of doing this was to show the way that she looked and dressed, perhaps compared to very cosmopolitan women in in the Taiwan of the 1980s. Another way that she had a every gendered role in the story is that she eventually married Zhuo, who had, who had led the hijacking attempt. They actually were married in a pretty big ceremony because the two of them were these great hijacking stars, these these righteous warriors. They also went to jail together because they were found guilty of bigamy. Joel was married in China, and so when news of this wedding in Taiwan had made it back into the PRC, his wife, who was still his wife there in northern China,、um, brought suit against him in the courts of the PRC. And in this very interesting way, the ROC government recognized that marriage under the PRC and. Zhuo and Gao Dongping, the husband and wife, both had short prison sentences in around 1987. That was part one of an excellent conversation on defectors from the PRC to Taiwan, 1960 to 1989. A big shishia to Li Pingchen and Andrew Morris for sharing their talk with us. Check in next week for part two.
in which Chen and Morris discuss how Cold War issues between North and South Korea influenced defectors to Taiwan. They'll also discuss the incredible amounts of money defectors, especially pilots, were given by the ROC government until an increasingly free Taiwanese society and opposition politicians began giving some serious pushback. And finally, we'll hear Chen and Morris talk a little bit about two-way traffic and how the defections were by no means exclusively from the PRC to Taiwan. This has been a Formosa Files special episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Eric Michael Smith.